a Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. And as we follow Christ together, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot as a church over the years is that following Christ means, among other things, he calls us to seek the flourishing of the place where we live. There's a sentence in the Bible, it's in the book of Jeremiah, where God commands his people, seek the shalom, seek the welfare, the flourishing of the city that you live in. So, what we see is that alongside God's very clear concern in Scripture for the eternal destiny of individuals, alongside this are his designs for the larger creation. And so God calls his people to be agents both of personal renewal and agents of cultural renewal. That as much as God calls us to be agents of reconciliation between people and God, he calls us to be agents that are laboring for the welfare, the good of the cities in which we live. In the fall, we talked a lot about the first part. In the fall, we talked about personal renewal, what it means to become a Christian, what it means to grow as a Christian. Now, we're in the midst of a series that's about this other aspect, cultural renewal. How Christianity is not only concerned with individuals, but with cities, with cultures. And the time has come for us to ask an important question. How? How does a church work for the good of a culture? How do we as a church contribute to the peace and the joy, the justice, and the flourishing of businesses and schools, of art and buildings, of the whole ecosystem of ideas and institutions that form a city? How can we as a church actually contribute to the, the flourishing, the well-being of our city so that all members of this community can have the opportunity to live the best life that's possible for them? Well, obviously, there's no simple answer to this question because culture's complex, cities are complex. So what we're going to do is starting this Sunday, we're going to take five weeks to come at this issue of how. How does a church labor for the welfare of a city? How can we help our city find paths of shalom into the future. And today, we start by seeing that actually, when it comes to a city, when it comes to culture, if we're going to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, which all too often is the case for churches, then a place we need to start is by recognizing that by ourselves, as a church, we can do very little for our city. That a church cannot do much for a city. Let me show you what I mean. If you have a Bible, find 1 Corinthians. If you need to use your table of contents, don't worry about that. Just use it. That's what it's there for. 1 Corinthians. And let's go right to the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's look at the very first verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So, what we're looking at is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christian church in the city of Corinth. And notice, it's not written to the churches in Corinth. It's written to the church in Corinth. Now, that's important because actually... There was a bunch of churches in Corinth. There was a whole host. Just like in Arisenberg, there's a bunch of churches. There was in Corinth a lot of individual churches. But what Paul does here is he lumps together all of the Christian churches in that area and he refers to them, the whole lot of them, as the church instead of churches. And this is really important. And it's something that we see all over the pages of the New Testament. For example, listen to this sentence from the book of Acts, chapter 9. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. The church throughout this huge, vast region. Now, there was no megachurch. There was no big Colosseum. Anytime Christians went to the Colosseum, it was not for church. It was a different set of dynamics was about to occur. They were not gathering in some large crowd. There were many churches in this region, and yet in the book of Acts, they're referred to as, in the singular, the church. So what's going on here is an important point that the Bible makes. It's this. The church as a whole is more than any local church. And this was something that the church in Corinth really struggled with. If you've ever read the letter, the first, the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, you know that this was not their strong suit. And we would do well to learn from their mistakes. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. Now, who's the you here? It's not one particular church. It's all of the churches in the city that he's referring to as a singular whole. He says, all of you churches, you're quarreling. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then he cuts to the very heart of the issue with this damning question. Is Christ divided? You see, Paul is presuming that the church as a whole is more than the local church. It's all of the Christian churches in Corinth that together form the church in Corinth. Now, for us, for our particular church, for the church of the incarnation, if we are going to seek the flourishing of the city, we need to remember this point. We need to own it. We need to live with it. That's why, look, look in your worship guide on page 12. Um, in the back of your worship guide, page 12, there at the bottom, in our mission statement, notice what it says. 
The church of the incarnation exists for the glory of God and labors with others to build a great city for all people through a movement of the gospel. This is at the heart of what it means to be a church is to recognize that you're part of the church. This is at the heart of our mission. Now, there are two particular challenges that the Christians in Corinth faced when it came to living out the fact that they, in each of their individual churches, were really part of the church. The first one, the first barrier to living this out is pride. The pride of thinking we don't need anybody else. So jump over to the passage Levi read to us, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and notice verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. What is Paul dealing with here? He's dealing with a church that meets in Jim Bob's house, that's looking at a church that meets in Sally's house, and saying about them, we don't need you. We have everything we need in our church. And what Paul does is he says, he starts his letter by saying, the church. And then every time you read church in this book, thereafter, and he refers to the church as the body of Christ, he's not referring to just a particular group. He's saying the whole city of churches is the body. So for one church to look at another church and say, we don't need you, that's like an eye looking at a hand and saying, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Part of the cause of division among the churches in Corinth was prideful self-sufficiency. So Paul asked them in verse 29, really? Really? You're enough on your own. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues? Do, do you see what he's, this is a rhetorical question. He's saying, how can any one of you be enough? Self-sufficiency is a prideful illusion in the kingdom of God, in both individuals and institutions, there is an overwhelming temptation to believe that the best ideas, the most useful initiatives, the, the, the best way of doing things come from ourselves. It's so easy for us to think in these kinds of ways. But do you know what the very first negative statement in the Bible is? The very first time anything negative comes up in the Bible is when God says, it is not good for man to be alone in Genesis chapter 2. And this is a fundamental fact that applies not only to you and me as individuals, but we must know that it applies to us as a church, as an individual church, but because by ourselves, we are extremely limited in what we can do for our city. As a single local church, we are limited. And part of what we need to hear in 1 Corinthians here is that we're not only limited, we are incomplete. We're incomplete apart from the other churches in our city. So we need to set aside the pride. We, we, we have to resist any pretension as a church to self-sufficiency. Anytime we're talking about cultural renewal in this city, we have to always remember to resist 
the pretension of self-sufficiency. We have to own up to our own limitations. Now, that's the first barrier. The second barrier that the Corinthians faced, not the pride of self-sufficiency, a second barrier they faced was the pride of tribalism. Tribalism. Back in chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. Paul identifies four dominant factions in the church. And they each are identified by their leader. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Oh, yeah? We follow Jesus. Have you ever been around those kind of people? Right? So now, now to understand what's going on behind this, 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 this various groupings of churches, it's really helpful to know that the city of Corinth was composed of ethnic communities. As far as we know, there was no successful melting pot ideology in the ancient Near East. It was about as successful at ethnic melting pot stuff as it is now. Okay. There were three primary ethnic groups in Corinth 2,000 years ago. There were Romans, there were Greeks, and there were Jews. So it's this thriving commercial town. It's set along a very important trade route. And because it's a Roman colony, in fact, it's the largest Roman colony of the day, do, can you guess what ethnic group sits at the top of the pyramid? Romans. And since the town was actually located in Greece, the second most significant powerful group were the Greeks. And then, as a group of powerless foreigners, were the Jews at the bottom of the social ladder. So notice. Notice the list of who follows who. Paul was Roman. Apollos was a Greek. Cephas was the Jewish name of Peter. Do you see? So it's not... It's not a coincidence that who they follow lines up with the three dominating ethnic groups in the order that the wider society placed them. What I'm saying is that it appears that the divisions in Corinth were lined up along ethnic lines. So then there's this other group, I follow Christ and the implication there being the rest of you don't. We alone can claim that identification. It's that small clique of people that exist in every kind of group in the world that considers themselves the truest expression of that field. So what's going on? What's going on is akin in our city to people saying, I follow Minnow Simons, I follow Calvin, I follow Luther. This is their version of the denominations. The, the, you know, think about in our city, it's filled with Methodists and Catholics and Baptists and Mennonites and Presbyterians and Pentecostals and the list goes on. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to be Roman or Greek or Jewish. I'm not saying it's wrong to be Methodist or Mennonite or Baptist or Pentecostal. The problem is the tendency to identify your own tradition as the only true 
tradition. It's okay to be in a denomination. It's one of the ways we steward gifts. It's an important part of our identity. We are particular kinds of Christians. If two churches differ in their beliefs and practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper, well, guess what? They can't worship together. And that's okay. But it doesn't mean they can't be kind to each other and love each other and cooperate together. I think of the denominations like the houses on my street. We have different ways of doing dinner. We have different ways of organizing our leisure time. All the houses on our street, they're, they're sort of like denominations. They have their own peculiarities, but they also can wear those peculiarities in a way that destroys the unity of the street or in a way that produces a fruitful diversity. When we are estranged from other true believers who are members of the wrong denomination, we are failing to welcome those whom Christ welcomes. For our church to seek the welfare of our city, we need to be a part of a citywide movement of churches and ministries and parachurch organizations that exist in a supportive, encouraging web of relationships. So there's two barriers. Two barriers to us really living out the fact that it's all of the genuine churches that are the church. The first barrier is the pride of self-sufficiency. And the second barrier is the pride of tribalism. Now, let's see that there are also ways of dealing with these challenges. There are also bridges that God offers us over these challenges. First of all, notice 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 3. I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now what we see here is that in order for us to be a part of a citywide movement of churches and ministries laboring together for the common good, we have to start with a common ground in the center. The center holds. Unity is from the center. And what is the center of the Christian faith? Jesus is Lord. No other. Not a good example. Not a model. Not an impressive religious figure. But this utter exclusive claim that Jesus the Christ alone is Lord. That's the common ground. That's the center. We have to stick to this. It's not the peace position. It's not wearing beautiful little collars. It's not singing hymns or having rock and roll in your music. It's Jesus is Lord. That's the center. That's all we need for unity. That's enough. Christ is not divided. We don't have to be divided. 
Again, notice page 12 in our worship God. Notice our mission statement. The church of the incarnation exists for the glory of God and labors with others to build a great city for all people through a movement of the gospel. That's the center. A movement of the gospel is characterized by a willingness to unite around a commonly held center. A willingness to accept our differences on secondary matters. See, and this is hard. This is really complicated because there are churches, there are church-related institutions, there are organizations that have a mission for the good of the city, for justice and for diversity, but they no longer hold the center. See, this is not a mamby-pamby, let's just all get along. This is, let's get along around the center. In a strange, often unintended way, somehow... In churches, the pursuit of justice can end up in a Christless pursuit of justice. And that's not at all what I'm trying to argue for. It's not what Paul is talking about here. Too often what begins as a gospel-motivated concern for justice can turn into a fixation on justice in which God never shows up. Or if he does, he's in a very ambiguous kind of way. And when that happens, justice becomes something else altogether, an idol. You see, everything we do with excellence requires a center. And if if in our church the center is anything other than Christ, then that thing we're pursuing with excellence becomes the center, and it's an idol. Peace can become an idol. Diversity can become an idol. Tolerance can become an idol. All of these really good things. Do we want peace? Yes. Do we want diversity? Yes. Do we want tolerance? Yes. Do you know who first argued for freedom of religion? The very first time that phrase and that concept was ever articulated was by a Christian 1,800 years ago. Christians were the very first people to argue for religious tolerance. And not only argue for it, but to then go on to champion it. Yes, we want these things. But there is a way of pursuing them that effectively neutralizes the gospel. And flattens it out into a social service project in which the particularity of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, somehow becomes strangely absent. Devotion to shalom can become indistinguishable from the political platform of the progressive party. So Jesus as Lord has to be the center of this. There is a non-negotiable core to Christianity. It's found in the creeds. This is why we say the creed every Sunday. The thing we confess together every Sunday, this this creed we confess together, the Nicene Creed, it goes back centuries upon centuries upon centuries. And you know who says it? Catholics say it. Protestants say it. The Orthodox say it. Lutherans, Baptists, Methodists. This is the thing that we hold together. This is the center. So there is no one way of doing church. And we need to do the wise, humble, and patient work of discerning the differences between core issues and second-order issues. Okay, 
So to overcome the temptation of self-sufficiency and tribalism, first of all, we need the willingness to only insist on the core as the uniting place. A willingness to accept differences on everything outside of that. So cooperation requires a common center. And second, cooperation requires love. 1 Corinthians 13. It's interesting, isn't it? In our society today, the most frequent use of 1 Corinthians 13 is at weddings. You know, so many of us. Just a quick um, show of hands. How many of you have ever heard um, Love is Patient, Love is Kind read at a wedding? Okay. Wonderful. Husbands and wives need this. I mean, some marriages do. But the original context of it is not a husband and wife. It's a group of Presbyterians and Mennonites. It's a group of Anglicans and Catholics. The original context of it is Paul talking about unity among the churches that are the church. This is what we need. We not only need a common center... We need a common commitment to real love, hard love, difficult love. The kind of love that is patient with another church. The kind of love that's not rude to other churches. That doesn't delight in their suffering. We need this kind of love. Listen again to 1 Corinthians 13 as God telling you how you should relate and how our church should relate to other Christians. Catholics, the Orthodox, the non-denominational types, the happy, clappy Pentecostals, the really calm and rational Presbyterians. This is how we should relate. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I've got prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. So I bear with the other denominations. I bear with other Christians who do things differently than I do. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. This means that love has a bias for cooperation. Love has a bias for, for optimism. Love doesn't kind of do this toward the other churches. And you're pretty sure they, they're not right. And when they prove that they are right, then you open up to them. No, love has the opposite move. It moves in openness. And it, now look, now think about this. Christianity has a fiercely exclusive center. Jesus is the Lord. But it opens up into the most inclusive posture. We should see other churches in this town as gifts. Bearing the very goodness of heaven. We should see them as gifts to us and to our city, bearers of wisdom, bearers of Christ. All right, let's wrap this up by thinking about our own city. How are we doing? What's the religious landscape like in Harrisonburg? 
Here's what I've experienced. I've experienced a predominantly excellent expression of this. Um, For several years, a group of downtown pastors have been getting together. Uh, Myself, the pastor of Asbury United Methodist Church, Steve Hay, the pastor of First Presbyterian, John Herringa, um, uh, Tim McAvoy at New Beginnings, uh, Paul Fisk at Aletheia. We've been having coffee once a month. And we have discovered that while we disagree about Eucharist and about baptism, there is no disagreement about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have discovered that we hold the center together. And after several years of this, um, back in the fall, we said, how can we invite others into this? And so a couple of weeks ago, we added to that group uh, Carrie Willis at First Nazarene and Merle Shank at Grace Covenant and Steve Byler from Calvary Mennonite. And we went away to the Dillings house to pray for each other and for the city for 24 hours. And it was hard because there's a whole group of type A guys in the room, all of whom have a better idea, right? <laughs> like um, all of whom uh, tend to do things in the best way, right? And, uh, and you know what? They're, we can't worship together as churches. Like, how are we going to worship? Are we, the other person there was Chris Johnson from uh, Divine Unity Community. How are we going to worship? Are we going to worship like Pentecostals? Are we going to worship like Presbyterians? Like, we can't do that together. But you know what? We discovered that's okay. Like, it, that would be sort of like asking every house on the block to move in together and to eat meals together all day, every day. No, but you know what we can do together? In the fall of this year, we're all going to preach the same series of sermons. We're all going to write our own, but on the same topics, declaring Christ uh, um, to our city as best we can. You know what else we can do together? We're partnering for this thing called Cafe Veritas that you're going to hear about later. We can pray for each other. We also committed that as we seek to continue to plant churches in this city, we'll always call each other. And say to each other, hey, we're, we're going to plant a church. And we're going to share our members with each other. I'm going to announce to you guys soon that Grace Covenant wants to plant a church. And if you know anybody that lives in the area where they're planting, or if you feel called to it, you can do that. We're going to partner with each other at ordinations. That already happened with us. What I'm getting at is this has been my experience for several years in this city. That this eclectic group of pastors can hold the center and tolerate diversity on second-order issues. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed, and he asked the Father for his followers to be united as he is united with the Father. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. Each finds a home in the other. Each dwells in the love of the other. And Jesus prayed that the church would hold this same kind of unity. Each Christian, each church in Harrisonburg should not be afraid of holding the center while we at the same time hospitably receive the others as a gift. Christians, we need to receive one another the way the Father receives the Son. 
Each church should dwell in every other church as the Son dwells in the Father. This is what Jesus wants for this city. And so as we move ahead in the next four weeks talking about very practical ways that we labor for the shalom of the city, it has to be from a posture that we're not the only game in town. That if, if a letter was being written to the church in Harrisonburg, it would be written to all of the Christian churches. May it be so.